Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 13 How My Shore Adventure Began. The appearance of the island when I came on deck next morning was altogether changed. Although the breeze had now utterly ceased, we had made a great deal of way during the night, and were now lying becalmed about half a mile to the southeast of the low eastern coast. Grey-coloured woods covered a large part of the surface. This even tint was indeed broken up by streaks of yellow sand-break in the lower lands, and by many tall trees of the pine family out-topping the others, some singly, some in clumps. But the general colouring was uniform and sad. The hills ran up clear above the vegetation in spires of naked rock. All was strangely shaped, and the spy-glass, which was by three or four hundred feet the tallest on the island, was likewise the strangest in configuration running up sheer from almost every side, and then suddenly cut off at the top, like a pedestal to put a statue on. The Hispaniola was rolling scuppers under in the ocean swell. The booms were tearing at the blocks, the rudder was banging to and fro, and the whole ship creaking, groaning, and jumping like a manufactory. I had to cling tight to the backstay, and the world turned giddily before my eyes. For though I was a good enough sailor when there was way on, this standing still and being rolled about like a bottle was a thing I never learned to stand without a qualm or two, above all in the morning, on an empty stomach. Perhaps it was this, perhaps it was the look of the island, with its grey melancholy woods, and wild stone spires, and the surf that we could both see and hear foaming and thundering on the steep beach. At least, although the sun shone bright and hot, and the shore-birds were fishing and crying all around us, and you would have thought any one would have been glad to get to land after being so long at sea, my heart sank, as the saying is, into my boots, and from that first look onward I hated the very thought of Treasure Island. We had a dreary morning's work before us, and there was no sign of any wind and the boats had to be got out and manned, and the ship warped three or four miles round the corner of the island and up the narrow passage to the haven behind Skeleton Island. I volunteered for one of the boats, where I had, of course, no business. The heat was sweltering, and the men grumbled fiercely over their work. Anderson was in command of my boat, and instead of keeping the crew in order, he grumbled as loud as the worst. "'Well,' he said, with an oath, "'it's not forever.' I thought this was a very bad sign, for up to that day the men had gone briskly and willingly about their business, but the very sight of the island had relaxed the cords of discipline. All the way in Long John stood by the steersman and conned the ship. He knew the passage like the palm of his hand, and though the man in the chains got everywhere more water than was down on the chart, John never hesitated once. "'There's a strong scour with the ebb,' he said. 
and this here passage has been dug out in a manner of speaking with a spade we brought up just where the anchor was on the chart about a third of a mile from each shore the mainland on one side and skeleton island on the other the bottom was clean sand the plunge of our anchor sent up clouds of birds wheeling and crying over the woods but in less than a minute they were down again and all was once more silent the place was entirely landlocked buried in woods the trees coming right down to high water mark the shores mostly flat and the hilltops standing round at a distance in a sort of amphitheatre one here one there two little rivers or rather two swamps emptied out into this pond as you might call it and the foliage around that part of the shore had a kind of poisonous brightness from the ship we could see nothing of the house or stockade for they were quite buried among trees and if it had not been for the chart on the companion we might have been the first that ever anchored there since the islands arose out of the seas there was not a breath of air moving nor a sound but that of the surf booming half a mile away along the beaches and against the rocks outside a peculiar stagnant smell hung over the anchorage a smell of sodden leaves and rotting tree trunks i observed the doctor sniffing and sniffing like someone tasting a bad egg i don't know about treasure he said but i'll stick my wig there's fever here if the conduct of the men had been alarming in the boat it became truly threatening when they had come aboard they lay about the deck growling together in talk the slightest order was received with a black look and grudgingly and carelessly obeyed even the honest hands must have caught the infection for there was not one man aboard to mend another mutiny it was plain hung over us like a thundercloud and it was not only we of the cabin party who perceived the danger long john was hard at work going from group to group spending himself in good advice and and as for example no man could have shown a better he fairly outstripped himself in willingness and civility he was all smiles to every one if an order were given john would be on his crutch in an instant with the cheeriest ay ay sir in the world and when there was nothing else to do he kept up one song after another as if to conceal the discontent of the rest of all the gloomy features of that gloomy afternoon this obvious anxiety on the part of long john appeared the worst we held a council in the cabin sir said the captain if i risk another order the whole ship will come about our ears by the run you see sir here it is i get a rough answer do i not well if i speak back pikes will be going in two shakes if i don't silver will see there's something under that and the game's up now we've only one man to rely on and who's that asked the squire silver sir returned the captain he's as anxious as you and i to smother things up this is a tiff he'd soon talk em out of it if he had the chance and what i propose to do 
is to give him the chance. Let's allow the men an afternoon ashore. If they all go, why, we'll fight the ship. If they none of them go, well, then, we hold the cabin, and God defend the right. If some go, you mark my words, sir, silver'll bring em aboard again, as mild as lambs. It was so decided. Loaded pistols were served out to all the shore-men. Hunter, Joyce, and Redruth were taken into our confidence, and received the news with no less surprise and a better spirit than we had looked for, and then the captain went on deck and addressed the crew. "'My lads,' said he, "'we've had a hot day, and are all tired and out of sorts. A turn ashore'll hurt nobody. The boats are still in the water. You can take the gigs, and as many as please can go ashore for the afternoon. I'll fire a gun half an hour before sundown. I believe the silly fellows must have thought that they would break their shins over treasure as soon as they were landed, for they all came out of their sulks in a moment, and gave a cheer that started the echo in a far-away hill, and sent the birds once more flying and squalling round the anchorage. The captain was too bright to be in the way. He whipped out of sight in a moment, leaving Silver to arrange the party, and I fancy it was as well he did so. Had he been on deck, he could no longer so much as have pretended not to understand the situation. It was as plain as day. Silver was the captain, and a mighty rebellious crew he had of it. The honest hands, and I was soon to see it proved that there were such on board, must have been very stupid fellows. Or rather, I suppose the truth was this, that all hands were disaffected by the example of the ringleaders, only some more, some less. And a few, being good fellows in the main, could neither be led nor driven any farther. It is one thing to be idle and skulk, and quite another to take a ship and murder a number of innocent men. At last, however, the party was made up. Six fellows were to stay on board, and the remaining thirteen, including Silver, began to embark. Then it was that there came into my head the first of the mad notions that contributed so much to save our lives. If six men were left by Silver, it was plain our party could not take and fight the ship, and since only six were left, it was equally plain that the cabin party had no present need of my assistance. It occurred to me at once to go ashore. In a jiffy I had slipped over the side, and curled up in the foresheets of the nearest boat, and almost at the same moment she shoved off. No one took notice of me, only the bow oar, saying, "'Is that you, Jim? Keep your head down!' But Silver, from the other boat, looked sharply over, and called out to know if that were me, and from that moment I began to regret what I had done. The crews raced for the beach, and in the boat I was in, having some start and being at once the lighter and the better manned, shot far ahead of her consort, and the bow had struck among the shore-side trees, and I had caught a branch, and swung myself out, and plunged into the nearest thicket, while Silver and the rest were still a hundred yards away. "'Jim! Jim!' I heard him shouting. But you may suppose I paid no heed, jumping, ducking, and breaking through, 
I ran straight before my nose till I could run no longer. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 The First Blow I was so pleased at having given the slip to Long John that I began to enjoy myself and look around me with some interest on the strange land that I was in. I had crossed a marshy tract full of willows, bulrushes, and odd, outlandish, swampy trees, and now had come out upon the skirts of an open piece of undulating, sandy country, about a mile long, dotted with a few pines, and a great number of contorted trees, not unlike the oak in growth, but pale in the foliage, like willows. On the far side of the open stood one of the hills, with two quaint craggy peaks shining vividly in the sun. I now felt for the first time the joy of exploration. The isle was uninhabited, but my shipmates I have left behind, and nothing lived in front of me but dumb brutes and fowls. I turned hither and thither among the trees. Here and there were flowering plants unknown to me. Here and there I saw snakes, and one raised his head from a ledge of rock, and hissed at me with a noise not unlike the spinning of a top. Little did I suppose that he was a deadly enemy, and the noise was the famous rattle. Then I came to a long thicket of these oak-like trees, live or evergreen oaks I heard afterward they should be called which grew low along the sand like brambles, the boughs curiously twisted, the foliage compact like thatch. The thicket stretched down from the top of one of the sandy knolls, spreading and growing taller as it went, until it reached the margin of the broad reedy fen through which the nearest of the little rivers soaked its way into the anchorage. The marsh was streaming in the strong sun, and the outline of the spyglass trembled through the haze. All at once there began to go a sort of bustle among the bulrushes. A wild duck flew up with a quack, another followed, and soon over the whole surface of the marsh a great cloud of birds hung screaming and circling in the air. I judged at once that some of my shipmates must be drawing near along the borders of the fen. Nor was I deceived, for soon I heard the very distant and low tones of a human voice, which, as I continued to give ear, grew steadily louder and nearer. This put me in great fear, and I crawled under cover of the nearest live oak, and squatted there, hearkening, as silent as a mouse. Another voice answered, and then the first voice, which I now recognized to be Silver's, once more took up the story, and ran on for a long while in a stream only now and again interrupted by the other. By the sound they must have been talking earnestly and almost fiercely, but no distinct word came to my hearing. At last the speakers seemed to have paused, and perhaps to have sat down, for not only did they cease to draw any nearer, but the birds themselves began to grow more quiet and to settle again into their places in the swamp. And now I began to feel that I was neglecting my business that since I had been so foolhardy as to come ashore with these desperadoes, the least I could do was to overhear them at their councils, and that my plain and obvious duty was to draw as close as I could manage under the favourable ambush of the crouching trees. I could tell the direction of the speakers pretty exactly, not only by the sound of their voices, but by the behaviour of the few birds that still hung in alarm above the heads of the intruders. 
Crawling on all fours, I made steadily but slowly towards them, till at last, raising my head to an aperture among the leaves, I could see clear down into a little green dell beside the marsh, and closely set about with trees, where Long John Silver and another of the crew stood face to face in conversation. The sun beat full upon them. Silver had thrown his hat beside him on the ground, and his great smooth blond face, all shining with heat, was lifted to the other man's in a kind of appeal. "'Mate!' he was saying. "'That's because I thinks gold-dust of you, gold-dust, and you may late of that, and if I hadn't took to you like pitch, do you think I'd have been here a warning of you? All's up!' You can't make nor mend. It's to save your neck that I'm a-speaking. And if one of the wild uns knew it, where'd I be, Tom? Now tell me, where'd I be?" "'Silver,' said the other man, and I observed he was not only red in the face, but spoke as hoarse as a crow, and his voice shook too like a taut rope. "'Silver,' says he, "'you're old, and you're honest, or has the name of it and you've money too, which lots of poor sailors hasn't, and you're brave or I'm mistook. And will you tell me you'll let yourself be led away with that kind of a mess of swabs? Not you. As sure as God sees me, I'd sooner lose my hand. If I turn again my duty—' And then, all of a sudden, he was interrupted by a noise. I'd found one of the honest hands. Well, here at that same moment, came news of another. Far away out in the marsh there arose all of a sudden a sound like the cry of anger, then another on the back of it, and then one horrid, long-drawn scream. The rocks of the spyglass re-echoed it a score of times. The whole troop of marsh-birds rose again, darkening heaven with a simultaneous whirr, and long after that death-yell was still ringing in my brain, silence had re-established its empire, and only the rustle of the redescending birds and the boom of the distant surges disturbed the languor of the afternoon. Tom had leapt at the sound, like a horse at the spur, but Silver had not winked an eye. He stood where he was, resting lightly on his crutch, watching his companion like a snake about to spring. "'John!' said the sailor, stretching out his hand. "'Hands off!' cried Silver, leaping back a yard, as it seemed to me, with the speed and security of a trained gymnast. "'Hands off, if you like, John Silver,' said the other. "'It's a black conscience that can make you fear of me, but in heaven's name tell me what was that?' "'That?' returned Silver, smiling away, but warier than ever his eye a mere pinpoint in his big face, but gleaming like a crumb of glass. "'That? Oh, I reckon that'll be Alan!' And at this poor Tom flashed out like a hero. "'Alan!' he cried. "'Then rest his soul for a true seaman. And as for you, John Silver, long you've been a mate of mine, but you're a mate of mine no longer. If I die like a dog, I'll die in my duty. You've killed Alan, have you? Kill me too if you can, but I defies you." And with that this brave fellow turned his back directly on the cook, and set off walking for the beach. 
but he was not destined to go far. With a cry John seized the branch of a tree, whipped the crutch out of his armpit, and sent that uncouth missile hurling through the air. It struck poor Tom point foremost, and with stunning violence, right between the shoulders in the middle of his back. His hands flew up, and he gave a sort of gasp and fell. Whether he was injured much or little, none could ever tell. Like enough, to judge from the sound, his back was broken on the spot. But he had no time given him to recover. Silver, agile as a monkey, even without leg or crutch, was on the top of him next moment, and had twice buried his knife up to the hilt in that defenceless body. From my place of ambush I could hear him pant aloud as he struck the blows. I do not know what it rightly is to faint, but I do know that for the next little while the whole world swam away from before me in a whirling mist. Silver and the birds and the tall spy-glass hilltop going round and round and topsy-turvy before my eyes, and all manner of bells ringing and distant voices shouting in my ear. When I came again to myself the monster had pulled himself together, his crutch under his arm, his hat upon his head. Just before him Tom lay motionless upon the sward, but the murderer minded him not a whit, cleansing his blood-stained knife the while upon a wisp of grass. Everything else was unchanged, the sun still shining mercilessly upon the steaming marsh, and the tall pinnacle of the mountain, and I could scarcely persuade myself that the murder had actually been done, and a human life cruelly cut short a moment since before my eyes. And now John put his hand into his pocket, brought out a whistle, and blew upon it several modulated blasts that rang far across the heated air. I could not tell, of course, the meaning of the signal, but it instantly awoke my fears. More men would be coming. I might be discovered. They had already slain two of the honest people. After Tom and Alan, might not I come next? Instantly I began to extricate myself, and crawl back again, with what speed and silence I could manage, to the more open portion of the wood. And as I did so I could hear hails coming and going between the old buccaneer and his comrades, and this sound of danger lent me wings. As soon as I was clear of the thicket I ran as I never ran before, scarce minding the direction of my flight, so long as it led me from the murderers, and as I ran fear grew and grew upon me, until it turned into a kind of frenzy. Indeed, could any one be more entirely lost than I? When the gun fired, how should I dare to go down to the boats among those fiends, still smoking from their crime? Would not the first of them who saw me wring my neck like a snipe's? Would not my absence itself be an evidence to them of my alarm, and therefore of my fatal knowledge? It was all over, I thought. Good-bye to the Hispaniola, good-bye to the squire, the doctor, and the captain. There was nothing left for me but death by starvation, or death by the hands of the mutineers. All this while, as I say, I was still running, and without taking any notice I had drawn near to the foot of the little hill with the two peaks, and had got into a part of the island where the wild oaks grew more widely apart, and seemed more like forest trees in their bearing and dimensions. 
Mingled with these there were a few scattered pines, some fifty, some nearer seventy feet high. The air, too, smelled more fresh than down beside the marsh. And here a fresh alarm brought me to a standstill with a thumping heart. End of chapter 14